Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 21 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, June the 23rd. First, I'll be talking to Ross Sharman, founder of Energy IQ, an energy switching site for those looking for renewable energy options. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. But now, let's talk to Ross Sharman. Well, Ross, tell us about Energy IQ as an energy switching site for those looking for renewable energy options, turning the Australian carbon and electricity markets into one integrated platform. So, so we provide energy switch service that allows someone to be able to upload their bill and to switch to a cheaper provider in a couple of seconds. And then basically they can digitally switch to that provider all online without having to go through a call centre. Energy IQ is our own little, so we provide that service to banks and governments. So it's a, it's a back-end service. So we've got our own customer facing, consumer facing service, which is called Energy IQ, which is basically a marketplace for more renewable focused um, energy retailers. So it helps consumers switch to more renewable energy. Ross, electricity prices in Australia are now among the highest in the world, with our bills eclipsing averages in the US and still showing no signs of slowing. Correct, yes. So I think in Melbourne, the, um, the increase is around 16% in energy costs over the last few months. And I think going into summer, when the air conditioners start going, we'll see that increase even further. Um, it's going to get more expensive. So being on a, uh, a cheaper plan, but ideally on a, a plan that pollutes the environment less, is a good choice for consumers to make. Ross? The bottom line is the energy sector is also creating a lot of pollution. It's uh, Yes, it's, it's well, the energy sector is one of the biggest polluters in, in Australia at the moment, mainly through um, coal, so brown and black coal. And so those coal power stations have life cycles of between 10 and 15 years left. And there's a transition away from coal that's going to happen because solar and wind are now cheaper than the uh, the dark stuff 
<laughs> we're just trying to help to expedite that shift away. Now, interestingly enough, to what extent are Australian corporates addressing greenhouse issues? Look, I think it's um, big corporates now have a social responsibility, um, and that goes up to our banks. They're all members of something called RE100, which means that they literally have to report on their activities to reduce their, their climate impact. Um, so big businesses are doing this now. So I think, you know, homeowners or consumers care more than they did in the past. So small businesses really have a duty to um, try and do the right thing as well. And, um, you know, if they've got a choice, you know, it's not going to cost them any extra, which it shouldn't do then shifting to more renewable sources is a, is a good thing. So how can ordinary Australians reduce their energy bills? I mean, obviously, if you've got your own building, you can put solar on, but most people tend to leave. So by changing your provider to one that sources more renewable energy means that you are effectively making that choice away from coal or reducing your use of coal. The issue is it's hard to reduce energy in the household, particularly during winter. What's your advice? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I'm sure we all had the, the heating going over winter. Um, but there's there's some simple things, um, you know, and it's obviously in winter time. It's it's about keeping your curtains and doors shut and trying to reduce air circulation. Um, we all need to run our computers and and what have you. Um, and and then obviously in the summer, it's it's about you know reducing the heat coming into the house because it's it's the heating and cooling that's the um, the biggest factors. Yeah, the other thing that homeowners tend to forget about is if they've got a couple of fridges, they've got a beer fridge in the in the garage to try and get that beer out and, and put it into the other fridge because you know, running two fridges is actually quite expensive um, and it's, it's probably an easy thing to do to save money. Australians seem to be more aware now of climate issues with events like storms and bushfires. Would you agree with that? Correct. Correct, yes. So I think um, you know, the, the bushfires brought home what people haven't been able to see um so people know heard about climate change but didn't really see it you know ash so that that was a very real experience and so i think you know on the back of that that really does uh, bring home climate change and, and and what it can actually do what role will gas play as we move to renewables gas is an, an important um part of the mix but not as strong look it it's it's really going to be the next five years um, or ten years that will play a role. After that, it will become negligible. Um, so if, if you look at South Australia now, that's almost running one hundred percent renewable on some days, um, and that's got no coal. It uses gas, but it, it's really about you know balancing um, the assets and, and using gas to fill that void when it. How have energy retailers responded to Energy IQ? It's been very positive. And um, so some of the energy retailers we're working with have, have seen the positive effect for themselves to be associated with a renewable energy energy marketplace. We will be ramping up. So we're, what we've been doing is just doing market testing and we've been basically getting people to give us their feedback and it's been very positive and people have saved money. Um, you know, that's, that's the important thing as well as uh, reducing their impact on the environment. Um, but we will be stepping up marketing um, in the next 12 months on this. Now, what's the market for Energy IQ? Yeah, look at uh, Eastern Seaboard, so from um, South Australia up to Queensland. Some of the so Western Australia and Tassie and Northern Territory aren't competitive states, so they've only got one supplier there. What's your forecast for the coal industry? 
Look, I think it's it's interesting that two years ago or even a year ago, there was still very strong support for a new coal power station. That conversation's gone away. Well, thank you very much, Ross, and wishing Energy IQ all the best. No, thank you, Leon. It's nice to talk to you, and you have a great weekend. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, the unemployment rate has uh, fallen to 3.6% and employment rose by 75,900 people in May. What's your assessment of that? It was a really strong set of of data. Employment increased by 76,000 people uh, in May, up by 205,000 over the past four months. These are tremendous employment gains uh, at any time. Uh, but particularly in the current environment where obviously the labour market is is already very tight, um, but we're also facing a a range of of really um, challenging economic circumstances, and yet the labour market continues to strengthen. Um, There's lots of jobs out there, and a lot of those jobs are being filled, and that's pushing employment higher, which is great to see. That's despite the high inflation and rising interest rates. Yeah, that's right. Um, It's it's obviously been a very challenging... uh, you know, 12 to 18 months for a lot of people out there. But it's not necessarily reflected in the labour market outcomes that we are seeing. There's been no meaningful moderation or or, uh, slowdown in in labour market conditions. The labour market is, uh, well, the unemployment rate is only slightly above the 3.4% level it reached in October last year. Uh, It's still one of the um, lowest unemployment rates we've seen in the past half century. So what you're saying is not a lot has changed so far this year. Yeah, that's right. Um, last year we were breaking records left and right with most uh, labour market metrics doing things we hadn't seen in either a long time or, or ever before. Um, and, and not much has changed this year. Um, we're only slightly off where we were towards the end of, of last year. Conditions are still very, very tight. Recruitment remains very challenging for employers across the nation. Well, that's despite all the projections from the RBA and and indeed Treasury that unemployment will have to rise. Well, there is certainly an expectation that the unemployment rate will increase over the next 12 months, but they remain, both um, the Reserve Bank and Federal Treasury remain reasonably upbeat um, with their forecasts. Um, The Reserve Bank did expect that the unemployment rate would be uh, 3.6% by mid-year, which is, of course, uh, where it currently is. And they're only anticipating that the unemployment rate is going to increase in the low 4% range um, over the next 12 months. Um, Now, if that was to eventuate, I think that would be a reasonably good outcome, given the obvious challenge that that high inflation poses. But there is also a possibility that the the labour market continues to to outperform expectations. Uh, It's remained uh, highly resilient so far. There are still a, a lot of jobs out there waiting to be filled. The job vacancy rate at 2.8% is still twice as high as it was before the pandemic began. So there is a, a distinct possibility that the unemployment rate does remain uh, very, very low over the remainder of this year. Which would have massive implications for inflation. Well, it, it certainly does. Yeah, the Reserve Bank anticipates that further rate hikes are going to be necessary to contain the current inflation outbreak. And given that inflation is still running at 7% and we have basically the tightest labour market in the past half century, uh, it's hard to disagree with that assessment. Uh, it's hard to see how we can get inflation back to that 2 to 3% RBA target with an unemployment rate of 3.6%. It, it seems that doesn't seem viable to me, uh, particularly with some of the wage gains that we are also seeing because of that very tight um labour market conditions. 
So it'll be interesting to, to see how that plays out, whether uh, we can see inflation come down um, sufficiently um, without that uh, large increase in unemployment. Well, such good figures would suggest the RBA will continue to raise rates in July and August. Yeah, it certainly increased the, the probability of a um, July rate hike. Um, I'd sort of been 50-50 between a July and August rate hike. Now I think July is definitely on the cards. And you certainly couldn't discount a August rate hike as well. There is going to be some pretty important data, um, though, that, that comes through. I think we've got the, the monthly inflation figures are going to be important. The RBA has been closely watching those. Retail trade is going to be another important one as well, because we have seen a bit of uh, weakness in, in the retail sector, which is obviously you know, heavily exposed to this high inflation uh, environment that we're, we're currently facing. Um, and the retail sector was probably the, the first real cracks that had begun to appear uh, across the, the Australian economy. So that will be one that the RBA will be closely watching as well. But unless those measures you know, meaningfully change, uh, I think we can probably lock in a, a July rate hike at the very least with uh, an August rate hike probably more than likely at this, uh, this point in time. Well, that's despite the Fed indicating that it was putting rates on hold this time round. Yeah, that, that's right. Sort of the, the Feds wouldn't necessarily say they're defying expectations, but they, they've obviously um, sort of entered a, a different phase in, in their hiking cycle. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're completely done, but they're, they're certainly not being as aggressive as they have been in, in the past. The Reserve Bank is obviously faced with its own set of challenges, um, particularly given that inflation is remaining stubbornly high, and there is a, a sense that um, service sector inflation is, is proving to be more persistent than they might have anticipated. So they're, they're trying to deal with these domestic factors that appear likely to keep uh, inflation higher um, than anticipated over the next year or two. Uh, what about the rate of underemployment? That actually increased, didn't it? It did, yeah. There, there wasn't um, too many uh, bad things to come out of this uh, labour market uh, survey, but the increase in underemployment was one. It increased to 6.4%, up from 6.1% uh, a month ago. Um, it does. This measure does tend to fluctuate a little bit, up and down from, from month to month. So we'd really need to see probably another month or two of this to, to get a sense of, of whether the market is, is shifting there. My best guess is that it probably hasn't. There, there is still an incredibly strong demand for workers out there. Uh, we have seen a larger share of the population take up um, a second job or even a third job in some cases to increase their hours. So I think there is enough demand out there to, to bring that underemployment rate um, back down um, into that low 6% 6, 6 range over the next few months. So why would it have increased? Um, it, it's a good question. I mean, some of the volatility we do see from month to month simply reflects survey design, which is uh, not, a, not a great answer, but... Uh, uh, it is the reality that the, the data can be very volatile. Um, and so you sort of need to look at the trend a little bit more than some of the, the monthly movements. Um, and we have seen some big movements in underemployment in, in recent months. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether that's settled down. It could also possibly reflect the fact that um, uh, it could also reflect the, the cost of living pressures that a lot of households are dealing with. So there might be people who previously were happy with the hours that they had, were happy with the, um, the salary that they had, um, but due to higher prices, they now need more hours. Uh, they need to increase their, their salary. So it could also reflect a, 
a shift in the preferences of Australian employees as well. But, uh, I mean, what's interesting is that uh, didn't, didn't the figures show that employment gains slowed in New South Wales over the past six months? Yeah, so looking at the state-level data, there's some interesting trends here. So New South Wales has the lowest unemployment rate at 3%, but it's also had amongst the weakest employment gains over the past six months. So over that six-month period, um, employment in New South Wales is rising at a 1% annualised pace, which is pretty slow when you consider that Victoria is increasing at a 4.3% annualised rate, Queensland at 4.1%, um, and, and WA is up at 6.8% uh, uh, employment gains over, over that period. So all of these other states are generating uh, a lot more jobs and employment is increasing a lot more. Now, that could simply reflect the fact that the New South Wales labour market is a little bit tighter than in other regions of the country. Um, unemployment rate's down at 3%, which is, is obviously incredibly low. And, and so they just may be really struggling to fill a lot of these roles um, that are available across the state, whereas some of these other states that, that maybe have a little bit more slack in their labour market are finding it a little bit easier to, to fill those roles. Uh, nonetheless, so New South Wales is the engine room of the Australian economy, so that should be a, a better concern. It, it could be, yeah. It's um, perhaps a, a little bit too early to be to be very concerned about New South Wales and job creation in, in that state. And obviously you don't want to be too concerned when the unemployment rate's down at, at 3%. That's, that's obviously an incredible result. But it will be interesting to see how um, New South Wales employment gains shake out over the next few months, whether this slowdown continues um, or whether it proves to, to simply be temporary. Uh, but, but right now, it's, it's very clear that um, the New South Wales is performing very differently from, from most of the other states across the nation. Which could potentially spread to other states. Yeah, it certainly can. You know, a lot of big employers are headquartered in, in Sydney. And so if conditions in New South Wales were to, to soften, then it could certainly have spillover impacts to the other states and territories. And so what's your forecast for the next six months? Well, I, I do think it's likely that the economy is going to continue to slow down. Um, what we are seeing in the household sector is, is very concerning um, with regards to just how much higher inflation is than, than wage growth. It's led to a sharp decline in inflation-adjusted wages, and I think that's going to feed through to uh, potentially lower levels of, of household consumption and retail trade. Uh, which is going to, to cause the, the overall economy to, to slow down as, as well. That could potentially spill over into um, the demand for workers and employment over that period, although it is quite common for employment to lag um, changes in economic conditions. So we, we could end up with a situation where the economy slows down considerably over the next six months, and yet it takes a little bit longer for that to feed through to um, the demand for workers. Which will be interesting to see how that figures into the RBA's calculations. Yeah, the RBA is obviously anticipating that there is going to be a bit of a, a slowdown in, in economic growth over the next 6 to 12 months, um, but they think the unemployment rate is going to remain pretty contained in the low 4% range. Now, any deviation from those forecasts will obviously have an impact upon how they view monetary policy. But right now, I think what they're likely to do is to keep increasing rates until there is clear evidence that inflation has turned the corner or there are meaningful cracks appear across the Australian economy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we haven't seen that yet. Well, Callum, that's all interesting stuff, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, Parliament will demand that PwC named 63 partners and staff caught up in the firm's tax leak scandal as senators investigating the breach of confidentiality rules put pressure on the Australian Federal Police to explain why they did not pursue the matter as far back as 2018. Senate's Finance and Public Administration Committee is expected to recommend in an interim report released on Wednesday that the firm make the list of names public. The list includes the names of 63 current and former partners and staff who received at least one email based on confidential information from the Federal Treasury, including advice to clients on how to sidestep new multinational tax avoidance laws, relying on leaked intelligence from disgraced tax partner Peter Collins. It has some crossover with a list of 36 PwC staffers that Green Senator Barbara Pocock attempted to table publicly during a parliamentary hearing last month. Members of the committee finalised recommendations focused on PwC and the AFP on Tuesday afternoon. The report was released during Wednesday's parliament session. The Greens are understood to have pushed for the disclosure recommendation. PwC maintains that this group was not aware the emails were based on confidential information and should not be publicly identified. The Senate separately voted on Tuesday to require that Treasurer Jim Chalmers make public by June 28 the documents detailing historic communications between the Australian Taxation Office and the AFP. A motion requiring that documents be presented to the Upper House covers all correspondence, file notes, briefing materials and communications dating back to January 2016. The motion was passed with the support of the Coalition of the Greens, despite Labor warning against the move. Emails, notes and other correspondence dating back to 2018 and information about the decision that there was insufficient information to refer the PwC's tax scandal to the Australian Federal Police investigation are also covered by the vote. And the Federal Treasury failed to carry out its key role in shining a light on the country's $75 billion black economy, effectively abandoning its job during the depths of the COVID pandemic a scathing independent examination the department has revealed. Compiled by the Australian National Audit Office, the report found Treasury still struggling to carry out the work for which it was given extra funding in 2018-19, even after a special task force warned the black economy was an urgent, pervasive and damaging problem. In October 2017, the Black Economy Task Force made 80 separate recommendations to the then Turnbull Government. The recommendations, including a ban on cash transactions of more than $10,000, special public awareness programs and banning from government contract companies with poor tax records, were prompted by the task force report that found the black economy had doubled in size between 2012 and 2017 to 3% of GDP. In today's dollars, that's equivalent of $75 billion. In tax alone, the tax office estimates economic activity outside the legal system accounts for $12.4 billion, or 30% of the annual shortfall in expected collections. 
In response to the task force's report, the government agreed with 27 of the proposals, agreed in principle with another 21, noted 18, supported 6, rejected 3 and did not respond to 5. Then Treasurer Scott Morrison committed to the 2018-19 budget to approve Treasury $12.3 million, the Home Affairs Department $153 million and the Tax Office $313.2 million extra funds to deal with the black economy. Both Home Affairs and the Tax Office were found by the Auditor General's Office to have been effective in carrying out the responsibility. But the Audit Office said Treasury, which had a pivotal role coordinating the response to the Task Force's proposals, had largely failed to implement recommendations it was charged with overseeing. It said Treasury had not clearly defined responsibilities and accountabilities for the coordination for the implementation of the Task Force report. One of the Task Force's recommendations was to ban any person or business from making a single transaction in cash worth more than $10,000. The idea was ultimately dumped by the government after facing backlash from coalition supporters. The Task Force also recommended an ongoing shadow economy research program, while supported by the government as of February this year. It is yet to be implemented. An investment in new clean electricity supply is not happening fast enough to replace closing coal power stations, and the grid build-out lags what is needed for the energy transitions, the head of the Australian Energy Market Operator warned on Tuesday. Daniel Westerman said that investments are also urgently needed in firming technologies such as pumped hydro, batteries and gas to fill in the gaps when renewable energy is not available, with storage needed to expand by a factor of 30 by 2050. There is heightened nervousness around the ability for the country to meet Labor's 2030 targets, including 82% renewable energy. No new renewable energy generation projects reach a final investment decision in the March quarter, despite investors lining up to invest billions of dollars in proposed new projects, while some major new projects are running late. And Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews is facing growing pressure to pause all work with PwC, including with the Sayers Group, the new consulting firm of former PwC Australia CEO Luke Sayers, and carry out a full audit of the state spending on consultants. The push comes as Mr Andrews faces questions over his close connection to billionaire Lindsay Fox, one of the business identities in Mr Andrews in the circle and a financial backer of Sayers Group. The recently proposed $250 million motorsport complex is on land leased by Lidfox next to its Avalon Airport that will be overseen by former major projects Victoria director Tim Bamford. Pressure is now growing on Mr Andrews over the PwC tax leak scandal amid reports the firm has made close to $80 million from the Andrews government over the past five years, according to a state Auditor General Office. Report. The PwC scandal involves a former PwC partner leaking confidential tax information to partners and staff at the firm between 2014 and 2017. In response to the scandal, the Commonwealth has effectively cut PwC off from new contracts. New South Wales has banned the firm from winning new tax-related advisory work, and the Queensland Government is reviewing its ties to the firm. In contrast, Mr Andrews has played down the scandal, telling a public accounts committee his state government would not act in a unilateral fashion. And Australia's four largest banks have downgraded their growth forecast for the economy for the year ahead as households pull back on spending in response to aggressive interest rate rises, while the Treasurer claims the country is in good stead to face economic challenges thanks to strong employment following strong jobs growth in May and a surprise interest rate rise earlier this month. Westpac, NAB, Commonwealth and ANZ have downgraded their forecast for economic growth for 2023 and 2024, and both Westpac and ANZ economists believe a per capita recession, two quarters of negative growth in gross domestic product per person is likely in the next 
year. The weaker forecasts come just weeks after the Reserve Bank painted a rosier picture of economic growth, forecasting gross domestic product will lift by 1.2% in 2023 and 1.7% in 2024 in its statement on monetary policy in May, and after Treasury's forecast 1.75% growth this year in the May budget. Since then, the Reserve Bank Board has lifted interest rates by another 0.25 percentage points to 4.1% in June, the 12th rate rise in just over a year, and Governor Philip Lowe warned more rate rises were a possibility as the bank tries to bring down high inflation. The rate rises have been eating into consumer spending. National economic data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed earlier this month as households cut back on non-essentials to help pay higher interest bills. And Communications Minister Michelle Rowland has requested an urgent briefing from ABC management over the controversial move to cut 120 jobs as part of the national broadcaster's plan to target a digital majority audience. The ABC's push to adapt and evolve, as outlined in its five-year plan announced earlier this month, met its first significant hurdle last week when the taxpayer-funded media giant endured a torrent of criticism over its redundancy program, with the axing of political editor Andrew Proben prompting particular outrage. The acting president of ABC's Friends, Michael Henry, also sent a letter to managing director David Anderson on behalf of the organisation's 71,000 members to express concern over the redundancy program and the axing of the position of political editor. In its announcement last week that the ABC was transitioning to a digital first media organisation, Mr Anderson said, We've made clear our vision for the ABC to be an essential part of everyday life for all Australians through our high-quality journalism and content, wherever they may live across the country. One of several press gallery journalists to express outrage at the axing of the political editor role at the ABC was John Kepo, economics editor at the Australian Financial Review. On Friday, he posted on Twitter, Andrew Proben redundancy exposes the sad agenda of ABC news bosses. Woke, biased, out of touch with with mid-Australia captured by Twitter far left. Probes, news hound, fair on all parties and decent man. As taxpayer and Juno, I'm flabbergasted. State and territory governments need to set dates to end the use of natural gas as part of a nationwide effort to phase out the fuel and have a chance of meeting 2050 targets and net zero emissions, the Grattan Institute says. In a report that sets it on a collision course with gas pipeline owners, the think tank said Australia will not hit its target for carbon neutrality by mid-century unless it gets off gas and delaying action will only make the process more difficult. Producing and using gas accounts for 22% of, of Australia's carbon emissions. Grattan said alternatives to gas such as hydrogen or biomethane which is too costly and far off to be a realistic replacement, meaning about 5 million households in Australia need to be taken off gas and electrified despite the difficulties for households, businesses and regulators. Grattan's Energy Program Director, Tony Wood, a co-author of the report, said government should waste no time before setting deadlines for ending gas use. In Victoria, the state most reliant on gas, about 200 homes will need to be taken off gas every day until 2050 to achieve net zero carbon emissions. Grattan noted that while all electric homes are cheaper to run, electric appliances are often more expensive, so governments will need to provide lower interest loans or other funding for homeowners and tax incentives for landlords to close the gap. Findings look set to be opposed by gas pipeline owners who are resisting the push to electrification to reduce emissions and are instead campaigning for the introduction of a target for renewable gas, including biomethane and hydrogen, to maximise use of existing infrastructure. They cite modelling by Frontier Economics in 2021 that found that developing renewable gases to reduce emissions from gas would save consumers 
years, up to $7.5 billion a year in systems costs compared with full electrification. But Grattan said there were economic, technical and logistical reasons why widespread substitution of green gas for natural gas wouldn't work. He even said the most ambitious forecast for hydrogen envisaged would only match gas on price in 2048, while parts of the gas network would need to be upgraded and appliances switched. It said while biomethane could be directly substituted into gas pipelines, it is expensive, and Australia is unlikely to be able to produce enough to replace its current gas use. Working from home last year made the average worker less productive and more anxious, depressed and lonely, according to academic research that also found these impacts were lessened by good managers. The study by researchers from the Australian National University, University of Newcastle and Macquarie University broadly found that people were less productive the more they worked from home. But amid significant debate over the effects of remote working on workplace culture and productivity, researchers also found that many outcomes improved the longer the study went on, and a large proportion of the negative effects observed could be attributed poor management. This suggests firms with more skilled managers will have better results and the outcomes of remote and hybrid working will improve as companies get more used to it. The non-peer-reviewed research was based on roughly 2,400 employee responses across five quarterly surveys conducted between the end of 2021 and the end of 2022 and included two surveys that took place when some respondents would have been forced to work from home by lockdowns or stay-at-home directions. It found that each additional day for an employee work from home up until the fifth day led to a corresponding deterioration in productivity, efficacy, turnover intentions, depression, anxiety and loneliness. Employees who work from home five or six days a week however, scored better than those who work from home four days a week. The frequency associated with the worst performance scores on all metrics are other than loneliness. The state governments will need to issue almost $100 billion in debt over the next 12 months to fund ambitious infrastructure projects as budgets remain stubbornly in deficit first time they've raised more than the Commonwealth and bond investors expect competition to raise debt could mean states will have to offer generous returns to attract buyers. Queensland, which handed down a budget on Tuesday showing an unexpected $10 billion windfall, still expects to increase future borrowing requirements sharply from $15 billion to between $23 billion and $27 billion, while the South Australian budget released on Thursday shows total borrowings rising from $26 billion to $37.6 billion. Debt issuance by Australian states is expected to hit $96 billion in the 12 months of the end of June 2024, according to estimates by analysts at UBS. Two-thirds of that will come from New South Wales and Victoria alone. The total is $21 billion higher than the Commonwealth's $75 billion in planned issuance, a situation that is unprecedented, according to the investment bank strategist Julia Speccia. The problem, she says, is that the pool of investors for states is not as large as the Commonwealth's. The extent of Victoria's debt part released last month was the most surprising. Victoria failed to show any concrete budget repair, she said. The state's funding arm, Treasury Victoria Corp, intends to raise $34 billion by the end of June next year and $30 billion the following year. And Treasury has been tasked with investigating how much banks are gouging Australians on international money transfers as multicultural groups call on financial institutions to come clean on the cost of their markup exchange rates and hidden fees. Many Australians and international travellers in Australia sending money overseas are paying fees of more than 7% every time they make a foreign currency transaction. There is particularly concerned that Pacific workers within Australia who regularly send money back to their families are being affected by the marked up exchange rates and hidden fees. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission has told financial institutions to take the necessary steps to inform their customers upfront of the total price. 
but there is concern that this doesn't require them to properly disclose the marked up rates. The government has asked Treasury to monitor the situation and see whether further action is required on top of guidance issued by the ACCC, while Australia is working with other members of the group of 20 nations on a plan to bring the hidden fees down. And the corporate watchdog is calling on banks and stockbrokers to help safeguard market integrity and avoid any unintended consequences in their rush to adopt artificial intelligence. Joe Longo, chair of the Australian Securities Investments Commission, warns that recent developments in generative AI potentially create new and different risks and issues. AI is said to be a high and important priority for the regulator, he said. ASIC's new focus on AI will extend beyond its impact on the operation of wholesale markets. It will also look at the role of AI in the whole economy, including consumers and small businesses, he said. The regulator also plans to update its electronic trading guidance for the same reason. It will also look at the role of AI in the digitalization of assets, carbon markets. Moreover, ASIC's expectation for the financial industry is that appropriate controls on the use of AI technology will be part of the design phase and in place before new tech is switched on. He sees a danger that the fear of being left behind will drive uses of tech that have unintended consequences and notes a recent cyber attack on service provider ION as a reminder of just how interconnected global markets are and the implications a bad actor can indirectly have on market intermediaries and the markets themselves. But while calling for robust governments and operational resilience measures, Mr Longo notes that there is as yet no real consensus on how to regulate AI, if at all. The European Commission has proposed an AI law that takes a risk-based approach while prohibiting some particular forms. In Britain, a pro-innovation devolved regulatory model is proposed. China and Canada are proposing laws directed at regulating uses of AI. The Australian Government's recent discussion paper, Safe and Responsible AI in Australia, saw input on how Australia should approach the question of AI regulations. A decision by the Greens to defer to pay on the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund for another four months has granted the Albanese Government the first trip half of a trigger for an early double dissolution election. After Greens sided with the Coalition to thumb their nose at Labor and social housing groups and defer any further debate on the legislation until October 16, the Government said this qualified under the Constitution as the first of two steps toward establishing a trigger. If the Senate defers a bill to October, the Government will regard this as the Senate failing to pass a bill, Special Minister of State Don Farrell warned for the vote. If the Senate repeats the action with at least three months in between, the Government will have a trigger for a double dissolution, which is a full Senate election that must be held more than six months before the expiry date of the House of Representatives. At the very latest, that would be March 29, 2025, but the Government could go much earlier. If it wished, the earliest it could hold a half-Senate election would be August 3, 2024. Albanese has told colleagues it would be handy to have a trigger for a double dissolution just in case it was needed. He also believes Labor would boost Senate numbers in the event of a full Senate election. And coal exports through the port of Newcastle, one of the largest terminals in the country, are on track to record their lowest level in at least five years as wet weather, rail maintenance and labour shortages hamper shipments. For the first 11 months of the financial year to the end of May, about 116.7 million tonnes were exported from Newcastle. That compares with more than 154 million tonnes in the previous two years and more than 160 million tonnes in 2020 and 2019. According to an analysis of shipping data, the shipments would need to jump by a whopping 37.5 million tonnes in June to be on par with last year. Shipments in the first five months to May totaled just 53.2 million tonnes, down 10% on the same period last year because of poor exports in the March quarter, the slowest start for the year since at least 2019, as wet weather and labour shortages hampered production. East coal shipments for the month in May 
showed total coal exports from the port of Newcastle were 11.7 million tonnes, down 6% year-on-year, according to separate data compiled by Baron Joey in June 9th. No. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Janti Ayo, founder and CEO of AMS, who will talk about making the most of digital marketing campaigns. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the market outlook for the next financial year. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.